Now, I want us to open up in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. And I mentioned the verse at the close of the video, but I want to elaborate a little bit more on 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, the last words of our Lord in the book of Matthew in chapter 28, I'm going to go over there, is, uh, is our, the words of the Great Commission. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. That's the Great Commission. That's at the close of the book of Matthew. But the beginning of the book of uh, Matthew 28, uh, excuse me, the beginning of chapter 28 says and it, it starts with the resurrection. In the end of the Sabbath day, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and other Mary to see the sepulchre. And verse 5 says, And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, Come and see the place where the Lord lay. What I'm trying to say is the chapter, the end of chapter 28 is the Great Commission, but the beginning of chapter 28 is the resurrection, and the resurrection is the basis of the Great Commission. So in chapter 15, we have a 1 Corinthians. We have the exhortation to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And the foundation of that exhortation is the resurrection, which is the entire content of the chapter 15. So what we're trying to say is, how should the resurrection affect my life today? We know that one day the Lord is going to return, and we know that we are going to be transformed. We're going to have a resurrected body. But, so we're looking forward to the resurrection, our own resurrection. But how should the resurrection, that of the Lord's and also our future resurrection, how should that affect our lives today? Verse 58 tells us that we are to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And in this verse, the Apostle Paul tells us or shares with us that God wants to transform our life through the reality of the resurrection, not just in the future, but right now. Paul basically tells his readers in this verse, I want you to think about something. When he says, therefore, he's saying, I want you to think about something. And then he goes on and he says, I want you to be something. And then he concludes by saying, I want you also to realize something. So let's Look at verse 58 a little bit more in depth, and we'll look at these three points. Paul wants us to think about something, first of all, and this is the basis of the exhortation. He says, therefore, or consequently, or he says, listen, I want you to think about this. So the content of chapter 15 is so important and so consequential that the Apostle Paul gathers his readers and he makes an appeal beginning with their hearts. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren... When he calls them brethren, he's talking about the fraternal bond that we have in Christ that produces the boldness of, of Paul's exhortation, of his appeal to them. He's calling them brethren. You see, in addition to having our sins forgiven and our sins blotted out and having the righteousness of Christ credited to our spiritual account, God not only accepts us into his presence and uh, grants us eternal life, but he also adopts us into his family. And that's the basis of the Apostle Paul's appeal. He's calling his readers, he's 
making an appeal to their hearts. He's calling them brethren. Now, the verse that we quote the most in giving the gospel in Italy is John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, uh, even to them that believe on his name. Now, in the Roman Catholic context, receiving Christ, they understand that as receiving the Eucharist. Taking communion, they're receiving Christ. You see, if you are excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church, that literally means you cannot take communion, excommunicated. If you can't take communion according to Roman Catholic teaching, then you cannot receive Christ. And if you can't receive Christ, you can't be saved according to their teaching. But what this verse says is, it says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power, that means the authority, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, not to those who receive the Eucharist. And so you can be born and raised a Roman Catholic and you can have your, ba- your infant baptism and you can have your first communion and you can have confirmation and you can have a, a Catholic wedding and you can have your, your last rites and all the other things that go with their sacraments. And, and when you die, you, you would go, according to their belief, to purgatory and you have to hope that someone will pray you out of purgatory into heaven. But that's not what the gospel teaches The gospel teaches so as many as believe on him, those that have trusted Jesus Christ and Christ alone as their Savior, they become the sons of God and it's not something they have to hope for. It is guaranteed in the gospel. And Paul talks to his readers and and he's making an appeal to their hearts. He's saying, hey, we are brethren in Christ. What he's saying is that there are no inferiors or superiors in the family of God. I've heard that quoted by Dr. Comfort many times in chapel. Now, the quintessential question in our family is this. Who is the favorite child? Now, I understand I have my daughter Ariana here. The truth of the matter is, now that all three of our children have left our home, my wife and I agree that our baby puppy is our favorite child, our dog Colt. Now, that's not true. The truth is, each one of the children have, you know, there's debate in our family of who the favorite child is, you know. But the truth is the favorite child is the one that is on your mind at that moment. The, the child, because each child has their own uniquely valuable relationship with each parent. And so you really don't have a favorite child. You have a unique relationship. And what Paul is telling his readers is that we each have a uniquely valuable relationship with the Father. God wants to use you. Paul is saying, you don't have to be an Apostle Paul. You don't have to be an Apostle Peter to be used of God. God wants to use his readers and therefore us as well. God wants to use you if you're part of the family of God. One of the main motivations of being involved in in God's work, and that's the exhortation we get later on in the verse, is the fact, it's a simple fact, is that we are part of his family. Now, you've heard of working in the family business. My parents were both tailors. Growing up in the Chicago area, my parents had a, a, a tailor shop in northwestern suburbs of the Chicago area. And I remember from the youngest age, I would travel to work with my parents, and we would work in the tailor shop. We would vacuum the floor. We would sweep the tailor shop. We would wash the windows. We'd polish the shoes. They had a tuxedo rental shop along with the, the, the tailor shop. And we were busy at work. My sisters were ironing the shirts, and we were all working Because in the family business, everybody has to contribute. I remember being uh, working when we would spend summers in Italy to visit my my uncles. uh, Two of my uncles in Castiglione, the little castle town by the coast. Two of my uncles 
had restaurants. And my mother is one of nine children, and, and all of her siblings had at least five children. So I have dozens and dozens of cousins. And uh, all these cousins were the workers, including myself, the workers in my uncle's restaurants. Well, you know, we were just visiting for the summer. I remember being about eight or nine years old, and my cousins and I were slaving away in the back of my uncle's restaurant. But we were raised in America, and we realized that we had rights. And my uncle was violating our rights. And so we decided that we were going to quit. We were not going to show up to work one day. And so me and my two or three other cousins decided to just take a stroll in the neighborhood downtown uh, up along the coast. Uh, when the restaurant opened up. All of a sudden, we're walking down the sidewalk. My, cousin, my uncle drives up in his Fiat 2000, and he jumps the curb, and he slams on the brakes, and he sees us walking down the sidewalk, and he says, hey, what are you guys doing? The restaurant is open. We're waiting for you. We're like, Uncle Steve, we're not coming to work. We're, we're quitting. We quit. We're not coming to work. My uncle grabbed us by the ear, threw us in the back of his, his Fiat. He says, we're, you can't quit your family. So we spent the rest of that night and every other night peeling garlic, washing dishes, drying the glasses and all that. That's where I learned how to work was in my uncle's restaurant. But there's a principle there. You you can't quit the family business. The Apostle Paul is saying, he's saying, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because the work of the Lord is the family business. You can't quit. And then he obviously adds that. He says, my beloved brethren. He's just pointing out the fact that that we we are precious to God and we are precious one to another. Love, in my opinion, is the greatest motivation for doing anything. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What greater motivation would there be to serve the Lord than the fact that he loves us and therefore we ought to love him? God's love for us and our connection one to another are very strong motivations driving us to serve him faithfully. So he makes an appeal to their heart, but he also makes an appeal to their mind. He says, therefore, and when he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, he's making reference to the rest of the chapter that he had just expounded on the resurrection for 57 verses. The importance of the Lord's resurrection. For 57 verses, Paul gives the most complete exposition on the resurrection in all of Scripture. He basically tells his readers that without the resurrection, nothing else matters. And so, denying the resurrection carries with it far-reaching consequences. And you have the verse 19, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And he doesn't leave even a millisecond before he refutes that that possibility by saying in verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Now, the reason why that verb is translated Christ is risen is because it's in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense means that it is, uh, it is an action that was completed at one time in the past. The Lord has risen, okay? He has risen one at one time in the past. But it carries with it an effect that goes all forever into the future, and the emphasis is upon right now. So we are not just serving a Lord that has arisen, but he is one that is alive today, and the resurrection ought to have an effect on our lives today, and that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying in verse 58. One day the Lord will return, and we will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. First Thessalonians says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord when we're caught up with him 
to be with him in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And that will be glorious. But until that day, the Lord has left us here with a very important responsibility, and that's where we come to the second point. Not only does Paul want them to think about something, but he says, I want you to be something. It says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Paul had said, I want you to think about something. And what he's saying is the resurrection is everything. He makes an appeal to their hearts and he makes an appeal to their mind. But now he says, I want you to be something. Listen, the emphasis is not doing in this verse. The emphasis is being. You see, that word, be ye steadfast, literally means to become. Geneste. The Lord wants us to become steadfast. And unmovable. So the emphasis is not on so much on doing the work of the ministry, but on being steadfast and unmovable in the work of the ministry. The resurrection will transform your life if you'll let it. Now, it's an imperative command, be ye steadfast. It's an imperative command. That means I have a responsibility in the matter. God commands me to be steadfast. It's in the passive voice, which means it's something that I can't do by myself. I need God's help to become steadfast. And so I need to yield my life to him. And it's also in the present tense, which means it's something that needs to be constant in my life or continuous in my life. John 15, 5, Jesus had said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. We need the Lord. It's a command. I am responsible for becoming uh, steadfast and unmovable, but I need to depend on the Lord's strength to become that. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, the Lord is teaching us exactly what he wants us to be or to become as we await his return. What he's saying, first of all, he wants us to take up a submissive position under his control. Be or become steadfast. Being steadfast means the taking up a submissive position under the Lord's control. Now, I've already made reference to our baby puppy. He's already six, how old is our dog? Six or seven, seven years old. He's a Labrador, black lab. We love him. I've never had a dog in my life until we got this dog. My mother was adamantly against pets and dogs, never would allow us to have a dog growing up. And uh, in 2013, my mother came down with cancer. In 2015, the Lord took my mother home. To, to, she went to be with the Lord. And not long after that, my children said, Hey, Babbo, that's Italian for dad. Uh, now that, grandma, that Nona's dead, can we get a dog? So we got a dog. And now we have a, a, a Labrador. Well, we decided to do some dog training with him. And uh, we went to, signed up for these courses that would teach us to train our dog. And really, they're training us to teach our dog. They don't train the dog for you. And the first command that we, were, uh, that we trained our dog, his name is Colt, in, in obedience school, the first command is sit. Sit. Now, what it literally means to be steadfast literally means to be seated, stationary, or to be still. Now, that's the first command that we taught our dog was to sit. Now, uh, Colt, he's not good at all the commands. But the one command that he almost, he almost has to do is he has to sit. Now, he does have a few tricks. And the capo saw he can open the door and close the door, right? Or shut the door. We say shut the door. But anyway, and he shuts the door. But one time I was going into my alley from, from uh, our yard. And I can't remember what I was going to do. But when I got into my alley, there was a cat 
and Colt came after me. When he saw that cat, and that cat saw him, that cat bolted, and my dog bolted after that cat. And I hollered for, we live near a, near a busy road. I hollered for my dog, and I said, Colt, stop, Colt, come. Nothing. As soon as I hollered, Colt, sit. He was in mid-stride, and all of a sudden, he just took the position to sit. It saved his life. It saved me a lot of hassle. Because when a dog is seated, the first command you teach a dog is sit. Because when a dog is seated, he's looking at his master and he is submissive under his control. You see, the Lord tells us he wants us to become steadfast. The Lord wants us to become seated and take up the position of submission under his control. It's exactly what this word is telling us. Now, we know, you, you know that um, Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. And so we are to be still, we are to be seated and recognize the Lord as our God. The demoniac of Gadara in Luke 8, it says that they found the man sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Mary of Bethany, you know that in Luke chapter 10, verse 39, it says, she sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. In fact, the Lord says regarding the controversy that came up about Martha not having help around the house and Mary was sitting there at the feet of Jesus, Jesus said, but one thing is needful and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away. You see, being steadfast is a matter of your choosing. We have to decide to take up the stationary or submissive position under the Lord's control. That's what it means to be steadfast. So the first thing we need to become, based on the fact that Christ is risen and that one day we will rise again like him, is to become a faithful, steadfast student of God's word under his complete control. But then he goes on and he says, be steadfast, unmovable. Once you're seated under God's control and obeying his commands, don't move. Now, going back to my dog, Colt, the second command that we taught him, the first one was sit. That, make, that brings him under his submissive, under my control over him. But secondly, the, the second command that we taught him was stay. Stay. You see, when you teach a dog to sit and then to stay, no matter where you go, he is supposed to stay. Even if you go around the corner and he can't see you anymore, when you come back around, he should be seated in that same position. You should be able to go into a grocery store and come back out and see your dog still seen. There are YouTube videos with that, you know, people who really train their dogs well to, to stay. So uh, you're not to abandon. Uh, once you, the position, you, you've, you've reached the position under the Lord's control and sit under this teaching of his word, you are to stay there and not to abandon that position until he gives you another command. By the way, and it's not in this text, the third command that we taught our dog was come, come. And by the way, we're going to hear the Lord tell us, come, it's going to sound like a trumpet, and we're going to leave our seated position, we're going to leave the work of the Lord down here, and we're going to be gathered together with him in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so the, the, and so, uh, but until then, until then, we are to become steadfast, unmovable, and then it says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So the first point, the first subpoint there is take up a submissive position under the Lord's control. But secondly, it is progressive action in the Lord's service that is always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
Now, abounding is the verb form of the adjective that we see in John 10 when Jesus says, I am come, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That word abundantly means to go further, to exceed in measure, to be more than necessary, superfluous, or we could say excessively. So we are to be always abounding in the work of the Lord excessively. And then he describes that with two modifiers. He says, uh, he gives us the, the consistency of the work, always abounding. That means at all times, we are to be about the Lord's business. Occupy till I come, the Lord had told his disciples or his servants in Luke 19. And, uh, and secondly, it is a submissive, submissive work because it is the work of the Lord. That means he is the king, I am his servant, and whatever he says, that's what I am to do. And so we are to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, how do I become submitted to God, stable and active in his, in his work? It starts with a choice of your will to trust Christ in every aspect of your life. To simply trust Christ for every aspect of your life. That's what Paul said in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The faith of the Son of God, that means I have to trust Christ for every aspect of my life. And the Apostle Paul is expressing the fact that he's trusting Christ. And so we need to say, Lord, I belong to you. I won't say no to you anymore. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll be or become what you want me to be. I remember singing that song, I'll be what you want me to be. When I was 11 years old, my parents moved back to Italy from the Chicago area. They had moved to the United States from southern Italy in the early 1960s. Raised a family in the Chicago area. Praise God, 1968, Easter Sunday morning, my mother went to church for the first time, a Bible-preaching church in Melrose Park, Illinois. And on Easter Sunday morning, my mother accepted Christ as her Savior, 1968. As a result, I was raised in a good Bible-preaching church and a good, uh, Bible, uh, uh, a good Christian family. My dad was saved many years later. Uh, but in 1985 and 86, my parents decided to move to Italy. I remember as an 11-year-old boy hating that decision to move to Italy. I, was, I, I didn't speak Italian at that time in my life. I got thrown into the Italian public schools. I was having a hard time. There was some trouble in my, my parents' marriage, and so it was just not a good time. And I remember struggling, and there wasn't a church for us to attend, and my mother would have devotions with us and family devotions. And I remember she would pull out the Bible, and she'd pull out, pull out the living hymns. We had living hymns that we had brought from our home church. And she would open up I'll, and make us sing, I'll go where you want me to go, and I'll be what you want me to be. And I remember as an 11-year-old boy singing that song, Grinding My Teeth. I hated singing that song because I didn't want to. Fast forward many years later, I'd gone back to the States, finished up high school, joined the Marine Corps, and I was deployed to Aviano, Italy in 1995. And I attended my very first missions conference in 1995 in a little church outside the base in Italy. And for the first time in my life, I realized, although I was saved at a younger age, I realized that I was, I was controlling my life. I had been telling God no too many times in my life over and over again. And so I, at, in that missions conference, I decided to just surrender my life to God. I didn't surrender to be a missionary. I didn't surrender to be a preacher. I just said, Lord, I won't say no to you anymore. And I wrote that in the front of my Bible. My wife just reminded me of that this week, that I have that written in the front of my Bible. I won't say no to God anymore. 
Now, unfortunately, I said no to God many times after that. But you have to go back to that decision always. And, and remember that when you've surrendered your life to God, you won't say no to God anymore. And you could say, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go. And so the Lord put a burden on my heart at that time and, and for Italy. And that burden has never gone away. 1995, and then a couple of years later, I went to the school at Ambassador. And then in 2006, my wife and I, with our children, had the privilege of going to Italy as missionaries. And... Uh, and, and we're very grateful. But what I'm saying is, how do you become submitted to God and stable and active in his work? It starts with the choice of your will to trust him for every aspect of your life. And then Paul closes, and I'll be closing with this. He encloses with an encouragement that comes from the exhortation. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. For the last 10 years, this church has been supporting our ministry and, and our family. And y- y- we haven't been back here to, to visit you and to show you. But, of course, you've kept up with our prayer letters and so on. But you may not have realized all that your prayers and all that your uh, sacrifices have made in Italy, all the, the benefits. But what, what we're saying is your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I wish I had the next couple of hours and the Capels had a privilege of seeing some of the ministry and some of the people that have been saved. And I wish I had the next couple of hours to give you testimony after testimony of all the folks that have come to Christ and how their lives have been changed. But what he's saying is that serving God may be exhausting, but it's totally worth it. Now, when he says, when he says for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain, that word labor literally means a beating It literally means grief or sorrow, fatigue, trouble, or toil. Now, preachers generally don't want to advertise the difficulty of the ministry. But anyone who's been involved in the ministry at any level understands that sometimes it can be exhausting. Now, just consider the Apostle Paul himself, what the Apostle Paul went through earlier in this very chapter. He said that he contended with beasts at Ephesus. You can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and there's a list of uh, verses there exhorting his, the Corinthian believers to be steadfast despite the difficulties in the ministry. And then in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, we have the whole list of all of his difficulties, his shipwrecks and his imprisonments and his, and his uh, hunger and his fastings and all of the difficulties he went, to, went through. Sometimes the work of the ministry may be exhausting. It may be a toil. It may be difficult. Think of what our Lord went through for our sakes. And so we may be called to go through a difficulty for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, but it is totally worth the effort. First of all, because He is worthy of the effort. And then when you see lives changed and people saved, And their lives transformed by the gospel. It makes it totally worth it. Serving God is not without reward. One day it will be totally worth it. And it's all worth it when you see the hand of God on your life and ministry. I have 20 years of examples that I can give you of God's provision, His protection, and His blessings time and time again. And anyone who has ever served the Lord has those, that testimony. When you see His hand. Just an example of the building that was really dropped in our lap in in a matter of weeks. It's just amazing when you see God do something that no man could ever take credit for. Then you realize 
The labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul wanted his readers to think about something. He wanted them to become something. He also wanted them to realize something, that their labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's all worth it when you see people's lives transformed by the gospel. There is a picture of a young couple uh, toward the end. They were also earlier in the baptismal picture, Donata and Nicola. One year ago, they were not saved. Nicola, just a 25-year-old man, uh, he was an alcoholic a year ago. And he came to the evangelistic meeting we had with Paul Crow and got saved, and his life is completely transformed. Now we're here on furlough, and he and his wife are carrying on some of the work with the children's ministry there. I just had the privilege of baptizing her in uh, July. They just got married, and now they're serving the Lord together in the church. When you see God transform people's lives, you realize that it's not in vain in the Lord, and it'll all be worth it when we stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, and we have something to offer him. It will all be worth it when one day we hear the Lord say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now just an hour and a half drive south of our house in Grosseto, Italy, you come to the city of Rome, and in Rome you can go visit the Mamertine prison where the Apostle Paul wrote 2 Timothy. I've visited the Mamertine prison many times. I love taking people to the Mamertine prison, and I love reading 2 Timothy from within that prison. You ought to read 2 Timothy, tonight when you go home and think about the Mamertine prison while you're reading that. He mentions his imprisonment in every chapter. But in that, in that book, he says in chapter 4, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearance. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord's, not just the Apostle Paul's. God wants the resurrection to change your life today, and he could, it'll all be worth it even in your life. He toiled, he was beaten, he was exhausted, but his labor was not in vain, and neither is yours. Let's bow our heads in prayer. As the pianist is coming, I just want to conclude before we go to the Lord in prayer, just with a couple of thoughts. God wants to transform your life through the reality of the resurrection, not just in the future, but right now. Why don't you start with a decision to trust Christ in every aspect of your life and live an ongoing service to Him regardless of the difficulty of the task and never quit? Why not decide to be a missionary? You say, well, I'm not called to be a missionary. Well, are you called to to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? And that always abounding in the work of the Lord may take you across a border. It may take you into South Carolina. It may take you south into Mexico. It may take you north into Canada. It may take you across the ocean to Italy or to some other country, the Philippines or Colombia. Why not make a decision and then lay it all on the altar right here? If you don't go, who will go? Father, I thank you for the joy and the privilege that it is to have your word and open it in this great country and before this congregation. Father, I pray that you'd have your way in each of our hearts. And I thank you and I pray your blessings on this church, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.